Open up in your Bibles to Matthew 27. I'm going to start this morning in Matthew 27. Keep a finger in Psalm 22. We'll get back there pretty soon. The gospel story, as Matthew tells it, is animated by a conversation around these topics. Who has the divine authority in this world? Who has God's authority? Who is the one who can bring God's goodness to us or who can lead us into the goodness of God? Who has the special relationship with God? Uh, with, with whom is he delighted, in the words of Psalm 22? And who is at the center of God's plan for us? Who is at the center of his kingdom? Who controls the access to all the goodness that God wants to bring to us? And in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, it's basically a long, tense conversation between Jesus and the Jewish rulers. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Senate of the Jewish people. And they were constantly debating this topic. They, it was, the, it was the, the subject of debate, debate for the entirety of Jesus' ministry. Not only among the ruling elites, but among everybody. From, from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, to to the seven curses Jesus levels against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. There's this constant conversation about who has this authority, who has this relationship with God, and who has this central role in God's plan. This is the subject of concept. How can you know, right? How can you tell who has this power and this authority? It used to be we just looked at the guys with the beards and the money, right? They were the ones that God had blessed. They had this authority. They had this role in God's kingdom. But here comes Jesus doing miracles and shaking things up. Maybe Jesus has this authority. And this, this conversation, even though it's very specific to that context, is really the kind of basic discipleship conversation that is presented to us every single day. Who has authority in your life? Who's going to bring us good? Who's going to lead us into the good? Jesus is not the only option. Right? Are you aware of this? There are numerous options. This is pretty much how the world operates, is by saying, we're the ones. My brand, my position, my viewpoint, this place to live, this thing to do is the good and will bring you into the good. This is the discipleship question. How can you tell though? Well, I think what everybody in all places at all times has pretty much agreed that if you end up on the cross, you're not the guy. <laughs> you are not the one who can lead us into the good or can bring the good to us. And so, as, as Matthew tells the story of Jesus in this conversation, the conversation continues on the cross where it kind of seems like the conversation has come to an end. Look with me at Matthew 27, and we're going to begin reading in verse 39. I want you to pay attention to three groups who mock Jesus who mocked Jesus on the cross, for whom him being on the cross now is the punchline to a joke. Right? Like Jesus has clearly failed. He's clearly a fool. All that he had been claiming, all that people had been saying about him was clearly wrong. The conversation's done. Now we're laughing. And I want you to notice the three groups who are doing this as we read verses 39 to 44. Those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Basically, the entire spectrum of possible points of view agree, right? So the, the hoi lapoi, the average person, they said, this is clearly the wrong way. This guy clearly has failed. The people who are in power, the, the chief priests, the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, they're making, clearly he's failed. We get to stay in charge. We get to stay the authority of all things. And then even the, the people who are with Jesus on the crosses who are revolutionaries, they're saying, we don't have the power. We want the power. We'd kill people to get the power. But this guy clearly doesn't have the power. He clearly is not this person in God's plan. The cross is a big problem for Jesus' claims. The cross is a big problem in our understanding of what it means to be a disciple as well. How much of our discipleship is, I'm willing to go with Jesus so long as my life improves. I'm following Jesus as a, as a kind of life improvement strategy. Jesus is going to, he's going to give me leadership tips so that I can uh, better, I can rise in my workplace. He's going to give me parenting tips so I can get my kids to do what I want them to do. He's going to give me tips so that I can win friends and influence people. And all of those visions of the Christian life and discipleship are all dancing around one big pointy pokey stick in the middle of that whole thing where Jesus is hanging. What do we do with the cross? What do we do with the cross? See, they, would have, they were saying, as they mocked Jesus, as they said, He trusts God, let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. They're saying that the cross invalidates Jesus' claim to have a special relationship with God. Oh, he delights in you? I don't think so. The cross invalidates Jesus' claim to be the focus of God's plan. He says, they say, oh, he's supposed to be the king of Israel? This is the one? Obviously not. The cross invalidates these things. Jesus is on the cross defeated. And the cross is the proof of that defeat. The cross exposes the pretense. It proves that God is, uh, Jesus is in disfavor with God, not in favor. The cross is God disowning, disavowing this loser. Right? If you want to know how, the, uh, how everybody viewed Jesus hanging on the cross, just think about the disciples' reaction to the threat of Jesus going to the cross. What did they all do? They all ran. They, all, they got as far away from this guy. Is this, your, is this your Messiah? They say to Peter, aren't you this guy's disciple? Oh, that blankety blank. No way! Because clearly if he's going to the cross, he is, we have to reevaluate what, what we thought his relationship was with God. But now let's look at verse 45 and, and Jesus' reply. The conversation's not over. The conversation's not over. Look at me at Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's weird. Jesus said the same thing that this old psalm said. What was he doing? He was quoting. He was quoting from memory the first line of Psalm 22 in this conversation. Interesting interesting little tidbit here. They, the psalms weren't numbered at this time. So this psalm would have, would have been referenced by saying, you know, congregation, let's stand and all say together, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And then they would all stand and say, my God, my God. So this was the title of the psalm. So Jesus, they're ragging on Jesus, and he replies, go to Psalm 22. Jesus references Psalm 22 to explain what is happening to him and to correct their claims and assumptions. He's saying, what it looks like, guys, is not what it is. Psalm 22 tells the story. This is important for understanding what happens this week. Psalm 22 tells the story that Jesus saw himself in. In Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus is walking with some disciples and he says to them, why are you so foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets predicted about the Messiah? Didn't the Messiah, didn't God's Christ have to first suffer and then enter into his glories? And friends, Jesus was not slow of heart to believe the prophets. He knew that suffering was going to happen. And Psalm 22 strengthened him to believe that glory was going to come. On the cross, Jesus believed Psalm 22. Jesus wasn't just super Jesus up there doing his thing. He was relying on Psalm 22, on the Word of God, in his sufferings. What are you going through today? Psalm 22 is for you. It's not just about Jesus. Jesus was using it. It was for him. And it's for you as well. So let's look here at Psalm 22. We're actually going to walk through the whole psalm this morning. Just read through it briefly with a few observations. And we're going to talk about Psalm 22 next week and the week after and also on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of this week. So we're going to be in Psalm 22 just like Jesus was at this time in his story. So Psalm 22 begins with, in verses 1 to 10, two conversations. And I want you to read along and track with me what the psalmist is saying. It begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. That's his complaint, but notice how verse 3 begins. Yet, but on the other hand, I know that you're holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. You're holy God, you're faithful God. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Verse 6 begins, but... The conversation continues. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, 
and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him if the Lord delights in him. So the psalmist says, I feel utterly forsaken by God. But I know, yet I know, that God is holy and he is faithful. And then he says, But my situation is so much worse than the Father's. My situation is so bad. Now verse 9, Yet you, Lord, are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Even though my situation is so much worse, yet I know that God has always been with me. So the psalm opens up with the psalmist saying, I'm forsaken, but I can still trust God. I'm suffering, but I know I still have this relationship. Verses 11 to 21, if you look at verse 11, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. It's a prayer. That is also in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. So this section is framed by this prayer, but really spends a lot of time describing the, um, the experience of defeat. Now I'm going to read verses 11 to 18, and I want you to listen as I do, and I want you to think, are you there? Is what, he talk, is what he's describing true for you, or has it been true for you? And try to listen and identify with the words of the psalmist. Let's, uh, let's pick, in verse, pick up in verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He's talking about being surrounded by external foes and being emptied out by internal fears. Verse 16, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When they're casting lots over your clothes, it's done. Right? When they're dividing up the booty, <laughs> the spoils of war, the war is over. They're not worried about you. You have been defeated. So the prayer, verses 19 to 20, O Lord, do not be far off. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then this next line, the ESV says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It can also be translated, uh, may you please rescue me from the horns of the wild oxen. May you have rescued me. It's kind of a weird, weird phrasing there. But whatever happens there, we know that in 22 to 31, we have really the celebration of God's deliverance. We have David's testimony here. And David's going to now talk about what God has done, and this, this message is going to spread. I want you to notice the layers of people, the extent to which the message spreads. Uh, I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
In the midst of the congregation, I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you, O God, comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people not yet born, that he has done it. David's testimony of what God has done for him is now going to spread to Israel, to all classes of people, to all the nations, and to all generations. The message is what? He has done it. I was defeated and God delivered me. God delivers the defeated. This is what God does. And so now, in your minds, go back to Jesus hanging on the cross in Matthew 27. And the conversation that's just been had. If God delights in him, why doesn't he rescue you? You trust in God? Where is he? Jesus replies from Psalm 22, Guys, what this looks like is not what it is. This experience of forsakenness, an experience of forsakenness like no one has ever had but me. He is the ultimate forsaken one. This experience does not mean that God's plan is over. I'm still his guy. In fact, this defeat, as we see in Psalm 22, this defeat is part of my mission. Because what my defeat accomplishes today is going to be the message that spreads and fulfills God's plan to spread the knowledge of his glory over the face of the entire earth. See, though though Jesus was mocked for being up on the cross, and though Jesus didn't really want to be up on the cross, right? that was a shameful, hard, horrible thing. Yet this defeat was always part of the plan. It was always part of the plan because the defeated carry the message of deliverance. The message of de- deliverance that God delivers the defeated. And no one was ever more defeated than Jesus Christ. And yet it's His message of deliverance that we hear at the ends of the earth from all nations 2,000 years later, just like Psalm 22 said. It's His message that we today hope in and rejoice in. Jesus believed Psalm 22, and Psalm 22 is His story. Today is uh, Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday is typically a celebration of Jesus, a foreshadowing of Jesus' victory. But how was Jesus going to be victorious? Nobody knew, but Jesus knew, because Jesus was reading his Bible. And Jesus read Psalm 22, and he knew that he was going to be victorious through an experience of forsakenness and sufferings and even death. 
And Psalm 22 tells the story of Jesus' experience during Holy Week. Jesus trusted Psalm 22. And so that means that when Jesus went to the cross, He knew that an experience of defeat is necessary for an experience of deliverance. This is just maths. An experience of defeat is necessary for an experience of deliverance. God delivers the defeated. The defeated who feel like they're all alone and they're surrounded by problems. Who feel ashamed and who feel forsaken even by God. Who are afraid, who feel overwhelmed, who feel like it's practically over. God delivers the defeated. And if God delivers the defeated, that means, this is what Jesus knew, defeat is not in the end defeat. What does Paul say? Death has been swallowed up by victory. Death has been swallowed up by victory because of our God. And our shame will be washed away. We will be vindicated for having trusted in this God. Now Jesus knew all this, and so He also knew that kind of an important lesson for us in our discipleship. Faith in God is not going to keep us from defeat. God, I trust You. Make everything perfect. That's kind of the deal that I have with God, right? (laughs) I believe in You, so now I want all the things. But that's what faith is for. Faith is for the experience of defeat. Facing defeats knowing that God is greater than them and that His plan is larger and longer than them. That's what faith is for. You know, Jesus is, of course, the ultimate sufferer and He's the truest believer, so He's the one to whom Psalm 22 is most applicable. But Psalm 22 is not just Jesus' story. It's our story. It's been applied by the people of God for the last 3,000 years. All who believe, all who suffer and struggle. Psalm 22 is Jesus' story of God's faithfulness. That's right. But it's, it's about God's faithfulness for us today. Us so that we would believe. So I want to think about a, a few different groups that might be here this morning. Those of you who are being defeated. Are you here this morning feeling like you're, you're in that process of Psalm 22? The the, the bulls of Bashan. You may not think of it in that phraseology, but they're surrounding you. The dogs are encircling you. The, the gaping mouth of the lion. You can count your ribs. You, you feel this sense of lostness, the sense of despair. I don't know what your situation is or what being defeated means for you. Right? Sometimes it's out here and sometimes the psalmist said, my heart's wasting away. My my, my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. I just, I can't, I can't do another thing. Think another thought. Take another step. Being defeated is pretty awful. But I think that maybe the worst part of being defeated, and we see this in Matthew 27, and we see it in Psalm 22, the worst part of being defeated is all the chatter. It's, it's the, the conversation that's still going on. Oh, I thought you were a Christian. 
I thought, oh yeah, look at them. They're Mr. Go to Church all the time, right? And you hear this, and you hear it from inside you. What's your faith been? What good is your faith now, buddy? What did Jesus do to the chatter? What did Jesus do? He talked back. What does the psalmist do? He talks back. Yet I know that God is holy. Yet I know that He's been with me every day of my life. If you are in a place of being defeated, Jesus uses Psalm 22 and the psalmist himself says, talk back. Remember what the Bible says, right? Jesus references the Bible and the psalmist references the stories of faith recorded in Scripture as well. Talk back. Remember what the Bible says. And that, that message and that hope that it gives you is not going to make things hurt less, but it'll help you endure. And at the end, your endurance will receive deliverance. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 9. He says, we were at the end of ourselves. We, we had utterly despaired of life. But this was only so that we would stop trusting in ourselves and start relying on God who raises the dead and He will deliver us. You know, the, psalm, the first thing the psalmist says to himself in his struggle is he said, but God is holy and God is faithful. God is holy and God is faithful. And I just want to draw this out because it connects to Jesus' experience on the cross and probably your experience as well. You know, we love God's faithfulness. We love to sing about how our God's going to come through. Right? But He's going to come through in, in a holy way. He's faithful. He's also holy, which means that the way that God comes through is probably going to be a way that is difficult for us to understand. How is he going to do this? What is it going to look like? And we're not going to understand that until probably later. And think about the cross as the ultimate picture of that. God is going to be faithful, but when, Jesus says, when? How is he going to do it? Well, he's going to do it. First, you're going to die. God is holy, but God always acts in such a way that his people end up singing. You are holy enthroned upon the praises of Israel. God always acts in a way that his people end up singing. So maybe you're here this morning and you've been defeated, but maybe you're here this morning and you've been delivered. If you've been delivered, please, friends, tell us. <laughs> Psalm 22, the guy who's been delivered gives glory and praise to God. Tell us about your story of defeat and deliverance. Because you know why? Defeat is hard on faith. Right? Defeat is hard on faith. It's hard to be afraid and ashamed and alone and in pain. So help those of us who are afflicted remember. Tell us what God has done for you. Jesus hanging on the cross was strengthened by Psalm 22. And you can strengthen us by reporting to us what God has done for you. And the message that, that Jesus got from the psalm was not, Jesus, try harder and do better. Right? It wasn't, come on, just breathe deep breaths and you can atone for all the sins of all mankind. Right? That's not what the psalm was telling to Jesus. Friends, if you've been defeated, 
and you've found God to be a deliverer, we need to hear your story. There's a lot of undefeated Christians out there who just become evangelists for the things that make them feel better about themselves. Their position, their disciplines, their viewpoint. We need people who are evangelists for God and what He has done for them. So maybe you've been defeated, maybe you've been delivered, but maybe you're here this morning and you just feel like, I'm fine. (laughs) I'm okay. And I don't mind church, you know. But sometimes sermons like this where the guy's yelling over the HVAC system can be a little much, you know. You're kind of like, it's like you're just sort of chilling on a raft in your backyard in the pool. And here comes this crazy guy jumping over the fence, diving in, telling you he's there to deliver you and save you from all the water in which you're going to drown. And you're like, deliverance? This is annoyance, bro. Chill out and turn up the praise and worship music. This This is my song. But what Psalm 22 is saying is you're not in the pool. You're in the ocean. And that swim ring is not going to save you from the things that are in the ocean. You know one of the most harrowing things, if you ever read any uh, like true survival, ocean survival stories, the most disturbing thing is how many other things besides sharks are out there trying to eat people. <laughs> There's a lot of things. We are not in the pool, we are in the ocean. And the world is deeply invested and deeply committed to, to helping us live in an illusion. And Psalm 22 says, wake up, wake up. There's many ways that defeat is going to come and someday the bottom is going to drop for all of us. And there is only one Savior. Psalm 22 reminds us of who we are, that we are a people of faith and not of sight. And this is what strengthened Jesus on the cross. We're a people of faith. I'm trusting you even though I don't see it yet. A Psalm 22 people who say, hey, what this looks like is not what it is. Can you say that about your situation? This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to me, right? Like, I'm with you guys. I know this looks terrible. It's not what it is. This suffering, this sorrow is going to give way to victory. The Apostle Paul says, he says, I've reflected, you know, through all of his beatings and stonings and sufferings. He says, I've reflected on the nature of our sorrows and sufferings in this life. And I consider that these Momentary, these present momentary, light momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. We have that victory because Christ was defeated for us. And we know of that victory because Christ was delivered and his message is spread to us. It was Jesus' defeat, the greatest failure the world had ever seen, that gave the Lord the moment for the greatest deliverance that there will ever be. And Psalm 22 says that the defeated one was delivered. The defeated one was delivered, and so God's plan is fulfilled. He has done it. He has done it. He has done it because this is what He does. This is what our God does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the message of deliverance to those who are defeated. Lord, we assemble here 
in Jesus' name, not as the winners of this world, not as the noble people, not as those who have it all together, but as those who look to you for deliverance, as those who look to you and celebrate what you have done in our lives, all the grace that you have poured out on us. And so we thank you that Jesus held firmly to his faith, held firmly to your word on the cross. And Lord, we're here this morning to hold firmly to him and to that good news. Lord, those of us who are struggling, who feel like we are defeated or being defeated, help us to look to you, to talk back, to lean on Scripture and on these good words. Those of us, Lord, who've been defeated, who've been delivered, help us to lead the way in drawing attention to your glory, your goodness, your faithfulness, and your holiness to tell our story and give others hope. We ask that you would do all this in Jesus' name. Amen.